All right, welcome to, this is actually our second episode of our Righteous Remnant podcast. Um, I'm here with Paul. It is November 8th, and man, the, it is crazy in the nation right now, bro. We've I have got... no idea what you're talking about, Dennis. <laughs> it's calm on my end. It's, uh, you know, I'm super hopeful that America is going to have a peaceful transition here. Yeah, so yeah, I don't, I, I don't believe you. Not. I'm definitely not hopeful in that. But yeah, we're going to talk about all that kind of stuff. we got yeah. the elections still raging. I mean, a lot of people think it's over, and um, Biden is it. But uh, I, I'm guessing you don't feel the same way. I don't. I really don't. Um, I don't care what mainstream media is saying. Um, you know, uh, everything's going to court right now, and I really think Trump's going to win this thing. I mean, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, in humility, I got to say, I we don't know for sure what's going to happen, you know, um, but I will say that several prophetic voices have um, really built up some major credibility with me, and um, they are all saying at this point that Trump is going to pull this out, and so my trust in those voices, plus also just the feeling that I have inside also, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself a prophet or anything like that, but I definitely do feel like I get impressions from the Lord. And sometimes I get very specific words. Um, but the sense that I have is I think Trump is probably going to pull this out, you know, internally. And that combined with all the prophetic words, and some of them were very clear. Jeremiah Johnson's word was very clear and direct Mario Murillo is a voice that I've really been trusting a lot over this past season. Um, he's feeling the same thing. I know Lance Wall now is feeling the same thing. Um, and there have been a number of other prophetic voices that have spoken out and said Trump is going to win this. A lot of them have indicated that it was going to be a disputed type of win. Some have even talked specifically about voter fraud and things like that. So um, I think I think uh, it, it seems to me like it's going according to plan. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to ask, are you any doubts at all do you think that it may not turn out you know that way and uh and if it doesn't turn out that way how are we supposed to respond to this yeah i mean i, I it it for sure may not turn out that way I, there's always doubt you know like if you've been involved in prophetic ministry long enough you understand that yeah sometimes they miss it there's bias involved in the sense that you know our own what we want you know, it's easy to hear God saying something that I really want to be true, <laughs> you know, and even even um, major prophets can be susceptible to that type of thing. Um, I, the way my paradigm works in this is I think that we as a church, we're still pretty immature in, in the prophetic, right? We're still pretty immature as a whole. Now, that being said, I do feel like we're really getting better at this thing. And um, I look at guys, again, I'm going to reference Jeremiah Johnson. I feel like he is, you can see, like, the the heart that he has is to refine and purify the prophetic, to stop it with all the really general, broad, feel-good type of words, and to get really specific. Um, and, and you generally see a higher level of prophecy coming out from guys like him. It's not just him. There are other guys that I feel like are much more trustworthy. Like if Lou Engel gets a dream, I'm listening with all my ears. You know what I mean? Like that guy, you know, when it comes to some of the testimonies he's had with dreams and, and his circle, guys like Matt Lockett, right? I don't know if you you heard um, about the Supreme Court stuff that Matt Lockett has, has heard, but, you know, his testimony with Neil Gorsuch and with Amy Coney Barrett, I thought those were really high-level prophetic words that turned out to be right on, you know? So... Some of these guys, you know, when I hear words from them, 
I have a, I have a lot more confidence in them. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm pretty new to kind of the prophetic. Um, I'm not a cessationist, so I believe that you know uh, people can still get dreams and visions and you know and prophesy and things like that. But um, yeah, I'm still kind of a rookie at this. Um, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been following Jeremiah Johnson, and and when you look at his his past prophecies, I mean, it was a hundred percent accurate to a T. So I came into this, you know, um, especially when they started prophesying that Trump was going to win a second term. I came in just full of faith and hope. But then, um, you know, uh, we had some very uh, strong prophetic voices kind of apologize, saying that they were wrong. And then you start to hear that if they are wrong, um, you know, you know, like, you know, our faith is in God for sure, but if they are wrong and it doesn't come to pass and they're leaving that kind of open, how are we as Christ followers supposed to respond to that? Because like I said, I, I'm new to this. So I, I, I don't yeah. know kind of the, the, the prophetic theology or the charismatic theology. So what would you say? Yeah, I assume you're talking about Chris Valentin, right? Yes. Like, it's yeah. okay, we can name names. I, I don't know of anyone else that's come out and just all, full out repented for prophesying Trump would win. He's the only one that I know of that came out and and repented publicly and apologized i mean so first of all let me let me specify i really like bethel okay i've got friends that hate them and you know consider them heretical and and all of that i am not in that camp okay i do think they have weaknesses at bethel and um you know in particular their theology concerning judgment right and interim judgments in particular and things like that um, I, I think is wrong. Some of the stuff that I've heard them teach, right? God never sends an earthquake. He never sends anything like that. That's always him lifting his hand of protection off, and it's always the enemy or something like that. Um, you know, I, I just don't, I don't see that biblically. I don't think that that's biblically true. And so I do think there are problems with their theology, but that being said as a whole, I think they're a phenomenal ministry. Okay, Bill Johnson, Chris Valentin, um, I really appreciate them. Chris, um, helped our minister up when I was doing, um, you know, I helped when I planted a church, helped plant a church when I was 22 or 23, you know, he walked with us and helped us out, gave us advice. So I, I really appreciate that guy. Um, now that being said, um, from what I know about Chris, he, um, you know, he considers himself as a prophet, somebody whose main gift is equipping other people to hear from God, something like that. Right. And there are different kinds of prophets. So you have like the Bob Jones type, Bob Jones, you know, is like that infamous type where he'll just show up on your doorstep, you know, prophesy the craziest things to you, read your mail, as we say in, in, in charismatic talk, and then he's gone like the wind, you never see him again or something like that. You know, that's like the Bob Jones type prophet, Like a right? Jedi. <laughs> yeah, right. um, and like some of the testimonies are so incredible, you know, um, from him and, and some other guys who are like that. Um, it, so there's all different kinds, but Chris, from what I understand, he's more of like his main thing is he's going to train a lot of people on how to hear from the Lord themselves, and I love that. I think that's a that's a really important gift, and um, that's wonderful. So I'm just saying when I when I'm looking for high level strategic prophetic words, Chris is not the first person that I'm going to consult. Right. That being said, he said that he did get a word about this that the Lord told him specifically that Trump was going to win this thing, and the question is why is he backpedaling now? I you know I just think that that is. You know, I, I, I don't think he should be. I don't think he should be backpedaling now when it's still in dispute, you right. know? I right. would just say, look, he's in California. 
I know like a lot of those students at the school of ministry, they're younger students, they're highly influenced by all the leftist stuff. I know that they've had, you know, a lot of their worship people, William Matthews, right? Some of these guys, they're they're pretty liberal, right? And so that influence I think has been pretty strong at Bethel. And I know that Bill and I think Chris also, I think they lean to the right politically, but they're they want their whole goal is they want to be at peace with everybody. Right, they want unity. They want they want democratic politicians in Reading to know that they support them and they love them and they're not against them. That's their heart, and I, you know, I, I appreciate that heart. I think that, that that's a that's a, a beautiful desire, right? And um, I support that to a degree. The problem is, I just think we've come to a place in our nation where we're at war here. It, you know, we're not in open arms, but we're in a spiritual war. We're in a fight. We're in a battle. And that's why I just don't think Bethel is is able to lead in that well yet. Okay. If that yeah. makes sense. Like, I remember sense, I right. heard a message from Mario Murillo when Mario Murillo preached at Bethel. And, you know, he was like, if I, if I remember correctly, he was talking about, like, you guys are, like, in revival, but you don't want to be having a party, like, on the Titanic. You know, like, you don't want, like, you don't want to just have a Jesus party while the ship is going down. You and and the thrust of that message, if I remember correctly, he was like, "You got to fight. We have to fight for this." And that's exactly this the the feeling I have towards Bethel. I just say, like, I want to say, like, Bill, it's okay if you offend people. Like Jesus offended a lot of people. There's a time to offend people, right? That's never our hearts. We never want to offend anybody. But there's a time when you've got to speak the controversial truths and not just quietly. You've got to declare them and shout them. And this is that time. Right, this is that time in America, which is kind of why we're doing what we're doing. Right, it's time to shout the truth, even though people are going to get offended, because that's their whole strategy. Their whole strategy right now is to say what you're saying offends me, and so you should not be able to say this. You should not be speaking right now because I'm offended, right. and they're using right. their offense as a tool of manipulation. Right, so when we buy that and we say, "Oh, okay," because we don't want to offend, then I'll, I'll kind of pipe down and I'll keep it quiet. Well, we're playing right into that strategy. So that would be my, you know, you know, uh, advice for Chris and, and Bill. And by the way, they're phenomenal ministers. That you know, they don't need my advice. <laughs> you know, they're not looking for my advice. But I just feel like, from my side, we need Christian leaders who will stand and not give into that shame, that intimidation, all that kind of stuff. Just stand up and let people be offended. Right? They're going to be offended. Like Jesus said, "Blessed is the one who is not offended by me." Right? So it's like he's saying, like, it would be better for you if you weren't offended by me. <laughs> right, that's what he's saying here. I think that's the spirit that we've got to come in. And man, I I wish Chris hadn't apologized, man. Yeah, but that's so counter uh, cultural to uh, kind of American Christianity, though. You know, um, a lot of the churches here predominantly are about playing it safe, uh, being graceful, gracious, and all those things. So, what's what's the right way then to contend? You know, yeah. how do you how do you speak out the truth in love? You know, um, because I think they're painting us into a picture where we're just angry all the time anytime we contend for the truth. So how do yeah. you do it where, you know, where it's Christ-like at the same time not compromising? Yeah, well, first of all, you can't be worried about what they think. Like, they're not going to think well of you no matter what you do, right? They're only going to think well of you if you do what they want you to do. So, I, you know, I know Christians are always struggling with that. How can I, how can I say the truth in a way that people will receive it, you know? And the truth is, look, if Jesus couldn't do it, you're probably not going to be able to do it 
right? Sometimes, right? And again, we're talking about different contexts here. But look, Jesus, I don't think, you know, he loved people. He wanted them to turn, right? Um, but they were offended by him. And and that happens all the time. That happened with Paul, right? Paul, they said, here's that troublemaker, right, who's been causing riots all over the world, right? Was Paul causing those riots? Paul wasn't the one causing the riots. He was the one speaking the truth, and the people were getting so offended and mad at the truth that he's speaking, they're causing the riots. But he always gets labeled as it, right? That's that's how this works, right? So I just think that, number one, you, you can't, you can't judge yourself by how people are taking what you're saying. People get offended with God all the time. I was just talking, you know, we were just talking about Psalm 2, right? Like the the kings of the earth rage, right? Let us throw off the chains of, of Yahweh and his anointed one, right? And and the Lord, Lord in heaven, he scoffs, he laughs at them, right? Yeah. And there is, you know, uh, I'm not going to be intimidated by people's false judgments against me, all right? I'm not, look, if, if you're going to be offended by a truth that I'm going to say, you're the one with the problem, okay? And I say that lovingly. We all have lots of problems, but this is one of your problems, all right? I I just did a seminar last night for um, a bunch of students, and I told them, look, your job is to be unoffendable. Your job is to be unoffendable. That's your responsibility, right? And I feel the same way. Somebody, I've had people say all sorts of insults to me, and my job is I'm going to forgive them no matter what. Okay, my job is to be unoffendable. Well, that that value is not well understood in the world today, in our culture, right? So don't judge by by their standards. And I'm sorry, I got lost in that question, so I forgot the other parts of your question. Yeah, what's <laughs> what's the uh, Christ-like way to, you know, uh, speak oh, the yeah. truth Yeah, yeah w- without, you know, being mean and For malicious, sure. I guess, you know? Yeah. Well, look, I, I would say this. I got really surprised when I studied Scripture. You know, I I don't, I don't remember how long this was, maybe eight years ago or something like that. But I just remember being shocked as when I really took a fresh look at the apostles. Dude, they're harsh, man. The apostles are harsh at times. And if we're honest, Jesus is harsh at times. He was straight up whipping people. <laughs> like, uh, you ever seen a pastor bust out the whip and start to go to town? I've never seen that, right? But Jesus did that. And, um, you know, he called out the self-righteous, hypocrites, whitewashed walls, brood of vipers. Like, this is harsh language. And um, the apostles, they're very harsh in some cases. So I think if we're honest with our assessment of what the culture of Christianity is in America, if anything, we're actually too nice. I I think that's the general prescription I'd have. We're too nice right now. If we want to be more Christ-like, we have to learn to be more harsh at times. And that's the thing. I always get rebuked by non-Christians especially, but also by very liberal Christians. Like, I need to be more loving and compassionate and meek and all this kind of stuff. And I just have a different definition of those things than they do, right? I think Jesus was very meek, but the dude could be harsh at times. Paul said, you know, behold the kindness and the severity of the Lord. He's both of those things. He's kind and severe. So I would also just say this, that even though in our circles, you know, you came from a, a megachurch world, you know, at least you spent some time there, and in my kind of, you know, Asian-American charismatic circle that I'm in, yes, we tend to be pretty overly nice, a little more on the seeker-sensitive side, right, very friendly. But look, there are churches out there where the pastors are not holding back. They're letting them have it. I, you know, I was actually really impressed by this election, man. Like, think about it. I think Trump legitimately won this election, right? I'm not sure, but I think it's probable to me that he legitimately won it. And that's with 
the entire media you know, conglomerate against him. That's with all the universities against him. That's with, you know, the whole Democratic Party against him. That's with all of Hollywood against him. That's amazing. That's an incredible wall of propaganda. And the American people, to their credit, saw through it for the most part. Yeah. That's 71 amazing. million people voted for him. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's more than Obama. Yeah. Like, that seems almost impossible. Like, we're here in California. We're surrounded by liberals and, and leftists. And it's like, holy cow, there's so much support. You saw those pictures and videos of Trump, you know, rallies. And it's like, wow, I'm I'm actually really impressed with the average American. I'm really impressed. You know, so I just got to say, like, what we're seeing around here in our circles doesn't seem like that's exactly how it is in a lot of other circles in America. And thank God, right? Like, you know, we feel surrounded sometimes <laughs> over here, you know. But I'm sure in a lot of other places, it's it's the Trump people that are doing the surrounding. Yeah. Well, I want to touch on that, on, on kind of support for Trump. You know, um, there's this rhetoric that, you know, us evangelicals are um, making him to be kind of like a savior of this country. You know, um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, okay. So I, I think Trump is anointed, okay? And... To be clear, I don't even necessarily know if he's a Christian or not. I think you can be not be a Christian, be anointed like Nebuchadnezzar, right? Cyrus, they were called servants, the Lord's servants, the Lord's tools. He's using them for His purposes. Okay, there's an anointing, in my opinion, on Trump, and what I mean by that is that he has a certain gift mix that is perfect for the hour. Like, there's nobody I would want leading this thing but Trump in a situation where the entire nation is against him. Like, he's the guy who won't, he's the opposite of Chris Valentin in this sense, right? And I'm not trying to say Chris is a terrible leader. I think he's a phenomenal leader, right? But but that's his strength. His strength is he won't stop fighting. And, you know, I think Ben Shapiro talks about that, right? He's a hammer in search of a nail, right? And sometimes he hits, you know, a nail and sometimes he hits a baby and he's just right. fighting. He's going he's gonna to keep oh, fighting, you know, no matter what. And um, a lot of times that's not good. You don't want a leader who's just going to be constantly throwing punches everywhere, right? right? But in this situation, in this circumstance in America, when the the elite institutions are all controlled by the left, he is like the perfect leader, right? So I actually, my respect for um, Trump, President Trump has grown tremendously over these past four years, man. Like I, I voted for him. Um, but that was largely based on trust. I, I trusted voices who said that this is the guy. And I was like, okay, I'm not sure if this is the guy. He might be faking all, you know, he might not really be pro-life, all this kind of stuff. I, I don't know if he's pro-life still, right? But he's appointing the judges we we want. So yeah. good enough for yeah. me, right? His, so, his, yeah. so his Trump, actions show that he's definitely yeah. Yeah. So for me, yeah. Trump is not the savior. I don't know personally, I don't know any Christians who like are idolizing Trump or anything like that. I'm sure they're out there, right? But I don't know any around me that are idolizing Trump. But when we look at him, we go, hey, I'm so thankful for this guy that he has the the tools and the gifts and the personality to fight this thing. I was just talking to a person on Facebook, you know, in, in comments saying that look, Trump He's got two things that the reason why he's so popular in the Republican Party, at least, you know, among the Christians is, number one, he is appointing pro-life judges. He seems pretty pro-life. He's ruling in a pro-life way. And number two, he is fighting against this Marxism thing. Like those look, the the abortion thing and the Marxism thing, the neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism, whatever you want to call it. These are the two 
most dangerous, evil things in America, in my opinion. And I understand lots of people are going to disagree with me on that. But from from my from where I sit, those are the two most evil things. And Trump is fighting both of those things. Like I mentioned last time, it was really impressive to me when he was like, hey, this critical race theory stuff, we're getting it out of government. Like he just made that call. I cannot imagine George W. Bush would never have done that, right? Mitt Romney would never have done that. John McCain would never have done that. And Trump is just like, you know, I don't like it. It seems like they're teaching people to hate America, right? And I'm like, exactly. That is exactly right. It's not a sophisticated analysis, but it's a very true analysis. And he just made the call and started doing it. And I'm like, thank God. Man, I wish some pastors had that type of discernment, but they don't. And that's a sad thing. That's a sad... I want to ask this, Dennis, and, and you know, I, I don't want to put you in a spot when you, you know, start bashing pastors, but I'm really curious here. Why are pastors so quiet about critical theory? Why don't they want to talk about it? I mean, uh, apologists everywhere are united in saying that this is a danger to Christianity, um, but pastors are not talking about it on the pulpit. I mean, what's up with that? I think most will get there eventually. That's my hope. I think most people, it's just too new in a sense, right? Critical theory is kind of the underlying, uh, you know, theory that's really behind all this I, this narrative of systemic racism that's coming out of universities. When I was in college, um, it, and in my college fellowship, which was InterVarsity, they were talking about social justice all the time. And for me, I was thinking like, okay, yeah, this is great. Like, let's help the poor, right? What's the problem here? But I would feel like, the emphasis of what their emphasis was didn't seem to really match my heart, right? I wanted to like save people on campus. I wanted to like pray for revival. And they were constantly talking about social justice and the need to help the poor and stuff like that. And it's not that I didn't believe in that. Like that's that's part of it. It's just, I could tell the emphasis was different. Does that make sense? And yeah. that's kind of like a low level influence of this critical race stuff, right? Uh, this critical race theory, liberation theology stuff, it starts off like that. And the thing is, that stuff is like pretty Christian. Like it's Christian to help the poor. Like we're all on that page, right? So that's why it's really hard to discern at the low level. It's only when you get more into the worldview that it starts to really deviate and look really different from scripture. Does that make sense? So I understand why a lot of evangelical Christians are into the social justice stuff and it's just over time, it starts to really veer into another direction where it, it it really pulls you away from Scripture. That wasn't immediately apparent to me. It wasn't apparent until I started to see the pattern with many believers who started to get more and more into the social justice stuff and start to, you know, de-emphasize parts of Scripture that I thought were important. And then, you know, many of them left Christianity, right? Or many of them abandoned evangelicalism, became very liberal in their theology. I started to see that pattern. And um, I just feel like the way it is for most Christians, Christian leaders right now, is they're where I was 20 years ago, you know, and it's like social justice. Yeah, of course. Of course we want to stand up for the oppressed and things like that, right? They just, they're, they haven't seen the fruit of it enough yet, if that makes sense. That would be my guess. I'm, you know, I'm trying to be charitable, but it's also because all, like, pastors are, are well-educated, um, but not super well-educated, if that makes sense right? Like they're well-educated, they've got bachelor's degrees and they've got master's degrees in, you know, in their MDiv and whatever. Um, 
but they haven't specifically studied critical theory, right? Or where all these, the roots of these ideas come from and stuff like that. And so because of that, they're just educated enough to take in all of the neo-Marxism that is so prevalent now in the universities, right? Like the average, look, the number one thing you're going to learn at university is that systemic racism is a problem in America. Like that's it. If you just want to pick one thing that every, every person is going to learn and they're, you know, bachelor's degree at an undergraduate university or at a, a public university in California, that's what they're going to be learning. It's systemic racism is a big problem. That's it's so well integrated into academia at this point that people don't realize they're being influenced by a different worldview. Got it. Got it. Well, what are your thoughts on this? Neil Shenvey, who's probably the number one guy when it comes to talking about critical theory, he's a Christian apologist. Um, he says this, Christian apologists are almost universally sounding the alarm over critical theory, while pastors are not. Why? Well, my hypothesis is that apologists are analyzing the underlying ideas, while pastors are concerned with relationships. For sure. Right? So, it's you know, what he's saying is that pastors are more concerned about keeping the relationship than talking about the truth. I mean, let's let's read between the lines there. What I'm getting is is that pastors don't want to talk about it, even though it is a danger to Christianity, but they don't want to talk about it because it might damage relationships. I think that's a huge part of it, for sure. It's a huge part of it. Like, look, you know, as a leader of a church, especially with, you know, all the problems in the church that we have talked about before, right, it's hard to offend people. You're, You're paying a cost here. Right, you're paying a real cost. Look, if you're offending people, and you know, especially because the universities are pumping out so many activists and people who are easily offended when you talk about this stuff. If any pastor starts to talk about this, come against critical theory, they're they're going to start making people really upset, and that can cost you your job. That can cost you your church. Your church could fall apart. Your church could be divided. Right. So the vast majority of pastors don't want to touch on controversial things. And, um, you know, we talked about that a little bit last time, so I don't want to dig back into that. But, yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. And pastors tend to be more pastoral, right? Like, they they want to protect people from pain, you know? And so, yeah, I I understand, you know, and or evangelistic, right? They want to win people for Jesus, right? So they don't want to offend people, and that's that's their heart. So, yeah, I would agree a lot with that analysis. For sure, for sure. Would you say, though, from 1 to 10, all right, how dangerous is critical theory? I think it's... What would you say? I mean, it's it's hard, you know, I, like an 8? Yeah, it's pretty dangerous, it's right? It's pretty I dang mean, dangerous because it's a, yeah. it's a different worldview and it's so sneaky. Yeah. It it right. it really tries... It's like, a, it's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. It looks really right. Christian at first glance. Right. It's like, yeah. yeah, let's care for the poor. Let's care about the oppressed. Like, yeah, like that seems very Christian. It's not until you you dig underneath that you start to see they're defining those words totally differently than the Bible does. Right. right? So that it's 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 tricky. Well, um, uh, extremely dangerous. And, um, I, you know, I have to say that I think a lot of pastors know this. Um, so for me, the most pastoral thing to do is to actually call it out. You know, if you want to protect your sheep and for them not to fall into a different gospel, you know, because you mentioned in our last podcast that it's a different gospel. So, um, you know, 
I, I hope I'm not being mean here, but I feel like a lot of pastors are not being pastoral in this case. Maybe it's just me, but that's how I feel. They just don't know yet. Look, it, it's because it, 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 it comes down to leaders, right? If John Piper were to come out and be this critical theory stuff, like we've got to stop it. If John Piper did that, we'd start getting real momentum on it, right? Some of these really influential leaders that people respect a lot. But look, those guys aren't doing it. Piper's not doing it. Tim Keller's not doing it, right? I, Keller has warned a little bit about critical theory, right? But I, I just feel like he is... He he holds to some of that stuff, you know. So he's it, to me his message is is very mixed, um, and that's why because there's no clear alarm going out from respected leaders, you know, the average pastor doesn't know exactly what to do. Wow. What should we do, Dennis? I guess at this point, how then do we, you know, start um, warning the church about the dangers of this? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm hopeful that as the fruit of this becomes more apparent, we'll start seeing more, you know, um, pastors really start to sound the alarm. Like, I, I, you know, John MacArthur is the one that is really trying, and good for him. The problem is John MacArthur can be so harsh, you know, towards, like, things that, you know, so many Christians love that it, he doesn't have a lot of trust in the wider body of Christ, Right. Um, but he is a very clear voice. He's a clear thinker about a lot of things. So, you know, it, it just starts with people with conviction really starting to sound the alarm and speak out strongly. And that's where we're at right now. It's starting to happen. So, and the church is starting to split on it. Evangelicalism is starting to split over this thing. And, um, that's, you know, I think that's going to become more and more apparent. You're going to start seeing more and more leaders take sides like, you know, most leaders don't want to take sides right now. They want to try and play the middle and be like, okay, I want to care for the poor and the oppressed, but I'm not so comfortable with some of the stuff that gets talked about in these, you know, in these circles. They want to try and play in that middle ground. What they're going to see is that that middle ground is going to fall out from under them because we're actually dealing with two worldviews that are at war with one another, right? And so I think you're already seeing that. I've seen, um, you know, uh, more liberal woke Christians start to say, hey, you know, I, we shouldn't be evangelicals. We shouldn't be identified as evangelicals. I think that's exactly right, right? Um, and they're doing it from a place of, like, evangelicalism is, you know, filled with remnants of white supremacy and colonialism and stuff like that. You know, that's their mentality. So we're going to see both sides start to pull away from the middle. You know, we'll start seeing the leaders on the woke side start to pull away from evangelicalism because they're they're offended, too, you know? You know, a lot of them are, are pretty offended with evangelicals. Trump has been the accelerator here, right? You know, so many on that side are so offended with people like me who support Trump and are trying to, you know, gen up, uh, you know, encouragement for him and stuff like that. And so, you know, they want to pull away from people like me. And so you're going to see that happen more and more. And then you're going to see more people like me who they there are a lot of people like me who they feel this they feel like this is wrong but they haven't studied it enough to be able to articulate it clearly and they just don't want to wade into that battle until they feel like they have a better grasp on everything because as soon as you start to voice stuff yeah you you open the world when people come after you you know and so i understand why there are leaders who kind of lean more to the right but they tend to be a little quieter about it i still i think that they're just getting more and more understanding and expertise so that when they get enough they'll be able to speak out and be able to defend 
um, their point of view. Because the reality is, if you're on the left, you you get all this training from the universities. They're literally creating activists, right? And their 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 entire college education is going towards training them to be activists in this. You know, we don't have anything comparable on the right right now. And so, you know, it's difficult. I totally understand why people are reticent to speak up on it because you get attacked and now you've got to defend all the stuff that you're saying and they're going to come at you with statistics. They're going to come at you with all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the, the truth is that you can, you can use statistics to say to support any position pretty much, right? So it's right. really a game of what statistics do you know? <laughs> you know? But, you know, what, what's crazy is that critical theory teaches that, you know, statistics can be used um, – uh, as a tool um, for the oppressor, basically. Course, yeah. Yes, and if you're hearing it from our side, oh, don't listen to their stats because it's they're really using that in a way to, uh, you know, oppress people. So it's like, oh, for sure, they have their stats, but we can't share our stats. So it's it's really hard to have a conversation on this, and it's it's really emotional for people too. Yeah, I mean, oh, that's a great point. You have to understand we're coming from different paradigms. Okay. Yeah. If you're really into the woke stuff, you're really into critical theory. You don't believe in civil discourse, right? You don't really believe in free speech because it's it's just a game of power. And so if you're giving the other side an opportunity to convince people, you're ceding power to them and they're trying to take power from you. And that's what that's all the silencing, the cancel culture, the deplatforming, that's where all that comes from. They don't believe in having an honest discussion and arriving at truth and fleshing things out via civil discourse. That's not part of that that worldview. And that's what I mean, right? <clears throat> so it's important to know which conversations you should engage in, which you shouldn't. Like if I'm engaged with somebody who is open and actually wants to understand and, you know, I'm very open to hearing their evidence, hearing if they've got something I've never heard before, right? Because I want to learn. I want to grow in truth. Um, but when you're talking with, um, you know, people who are more on that far left side, they're not aiming to understand you. They're aiming, they're trying to destroy you in the conversation, Right. And so when you're that's a bad faith conversation, don't I I don't even recommend people engage with those. Right. That's why I have a rule on my social media. As soon as they as soon as they pull out insults, I know, okay, this is not a good faith conversation. Right. They're just trying to destroy me in in the eyes of the people watching or something like that. That's just that's just a ban. I'm not going to engage in that type of, you know, bad, faith, you know, dialogue. Don't throw pearls before swine. I have to say, though, your social media, Dennis, you are a glutton for people just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just bashing you, man. I mean, what's up with that? That's, yeah. you're just so mean. <laughs> oh, yeah. that Yeah. It's okay. They're young, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, I know that it's, look, there's a reason, there's a reason why these socialist governments and supporters throughout history have done the most vile evil things because they believe they were doing it for the greater purpose for the greater good right that's always how you do it the ends justify the means so look if me tearing into this person insulting them and all this kind of stuff is you know the equivalent of punching a nazi i'm doing the greater good and that's how you justify being so vicious and mean and all that kind of stuff oh yeah our they're gonna do that all that kind of stuff and um and that's fine because my job is to be unoffendable. I yeah. refuse to be offended by any of them. And obviously, you know, I could fall into offense. So I need God to help me and protect me from that. But I understand my my goal is that people would be able to say whatever, the most vile kind of insult. And I'd be able to just forgive them, let it go, and that's fine. And I've I've had a good amount of practice over the years, brother. 
So, you know, and it's the best. I always tell, you know, my students when I, you know, I was pastoring, I tell them, you know, um, humility is the best, it's the most underrated virtue, right? Because, you know, the, the more humble you are, the harder you are to offend, the more you appreciate people and love people, even when they act in an unloving way towards you, you're able to understand them and love them as they are, even though sometimes you have to fight against them, you can still have compassion on them and understand them, and, and you keep your heart free of offense. And life is so much right. more enjoyable that way. Yeah, no, for sure. Blessed are you when they persecute you and say all kinds of mean things about you. I'm wondering how your heavenly account is right now. You must be really rich in heaven right now, brother. <laughs> I mean, I wish, but you know, it, you know, like th- this type of persecution. I used to tell my students this. You know, like yeah. this is come on. The mean face yeah. on on Facebook is the lightest kind of persecution we can get. Exactly. But it's good training. Yeah. I would say this. Yeah. It's also. I don't want to say it's not worth anything. Right. It has actually very good training. You know, like yeah. I think it's really healthy. I encourage Christians. Yeah. Speak out and let them let them attack you on Facebook. Like it's 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 a very mild form of persecution that is actually really good for training you to withstand persecution and overcome it and learn to forgive. I think it's a it's an important training ground right now for the body of Christ. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to be devil's advocate here, though, some would say that that is a conversation killer. Talking about controversial things like the election, like abortion, like critical theory, um, it, it it doesn't open up doors for the non-believer to actually have a conversation with you. So how would you respond to that? Um, can't you have both? I mean, I you know, I don't know. Like, I understand if I'm striking up a conversation with somebody that I want to lead them to Christ, I'm not going to start with Hey, Trump's the best, isn't he? You know, like, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to start with that. Um, I just feel like there's got to be a place for both, yeah. right? Like, yeah. you know, Paul is trying to win people in, in private dialogue, but he's also standing up in the forums in Athens, and he's, like, rebuking them all for worshiping other gods. That's a pretty controversial and, um, you know, from some perspectives, mean-spirited thing to do, but there's a necessity to do it, okay? So there's a necessity to publicly confront ideas and things that are wrong and talk about those things in a public forum but you don't have to bring that into every personal conversation like again i you know ben shapiro he you know talks about transgender pronouns right and on a when he's talking public he's going to be very firm on it because he's talking you know theory in a sense right but if he's in a private conversation with somebody who identifies as transgender he doesn't have a problem using their preferred pronouns per se and i i totally understand where he's coming from in that you know like on a personal level we can make accommodations you know and because we we we're sensitive to people we want to be gracious with them but what we're doing is recognize okay you've got a weakness in this area but i'm willing in out of love for you to accommodate you in that weakness a little bit right and, and that's fine. We all have to accommodate each other's weaknesses at times, right? If you know somebody's a little sensitive about something, you try and stay away from it if, if you love them, right? But that's different. You need another place where you can address those things sometimes in a public way if you're a leader, right, and a teacher or something like that. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely in a conversation, you don't want to just bring it up, you know, are you for Trump? <laughs> you know, not, not like that, but it, more of like, you know, uh, uh, people like yourself who have a platform. Uh, pastors, speakers, you know, um, they, they're choosing, um, you know, not you, but others are choosing not to talk about these things because they don't want to close the door for people to hear the gospel. Right. Because if they go ahead and start talking about critical theory or abortion or Marxism and all these things, then people will actually 
you know, um, not are not interested in that and or they might get offended, you know, and then they don't hear the gospel. So for them, they want to strictly focus on Jesus, on the gospel. And then, you know, hopefully, you know, somebody can talk to them about these things later, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it's yeah. just, it's just yeah. not the biblical model. I mean, honestly, look at all of Paul's letters. He spends a good chunk of most of his letters addressing false teachings. And he's pleading with them. He's speaking very forcefully about a lot of these things precisely because they can corrupt. He tells Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely, right? And there, like, it matters. False teaching really does corrupt people, right? It really does corrupt um, people who are younger in the Lord. And so as leaders, you have to warn your people about dangerous false teachings. And that, by by the nature of it, if they're good false teachings, they become controversial. That means they've, they've made inroads. People believe this. And, and in Paul's day, it was the same thing. That's why Paul was very persecuted in a lot of places, right? Um, because he's speaking so forcefully on very controversial issues. So I understand the heart of it, the heart. We don't want to offend anybody. But it's just not the biblical model, and it does far more damage than good. It does far more damage than good, and that's something that I, I'm hopeful is changing in the American church. We've gone through this, you know, church growth thing and seeker-sensitive movement, and I think right now is the time where this whole thing's being discredited, right? We have Bill Hybels, you know, is is gone, right? This thing just came out with Carl Lentz, right? I think we're going to see a lot more pastors exposed and to be clear i'm not trying to say these are bad men okay you can my philosophy on this is you can have a leader who has amazing strengths great strengths but also great weaknesses you can have both of them at the same time right and the problem is there have been some great weaknesses that we have not recognized as weaknesses in leaders in the body and we've been empowering them and 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 that's why it's a huge part of why the church is so unprepared to fight this battle right now and why we've been laying down and seeding so many portions of our culture and not fighting for it. And um and I think that's that's shifting right now in this in this time it's shifting. Yeah. It's as if God is gonna raise, you know, warriors on the pulpit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about abortion, Dennis. Um, you know, I went to a church that uh, a pastor said that um, while he believes that abortion is a sin and it's evil, he doesn't want to talk about it because there's a lot of women who have gone through that and he wants to be sensitive to what they're going through. Okay, so it's, it's again, coming from that camp of not wanting to offend. Yep. But the consequence of that now, because... You know, many, many uh, leaders are not willing to talk about it. Um, there's a lot of Christians now who are not really seeing how evil this is. 63 million babies. It's as if they've become desensitized to how bad that is. Yep. You know, um, and and I guess what I want to ask is, is how do you feel about Christ followers who are celebrating candidates who are for infanticide yeah who are for you know the murder of babies by the millions up to nine months after birth abortions i mean how, how do we how do we even start talking about this because i can't believe that there's actually christians who, who think this yeah I mean, what do you think i mean there's a lot of issues here let me see if i can try and break it yeah. down well so first yeah. of all I threw a lot at you there 
let's let's give these Christians outside, you know, let's steel man their position a little bit, right? I don't know of any evangelical Christians who are like pro-abortion, like they want more abor- abortions. Right, right. right. They're, they're not pro-abortion, yeah, but they're just, well, you know, uh, it's their choice. You know, I yeah. think it's evil, but it's their choice. You yes. know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the um, there's kind of two things here. Number one, um, the argument that I hear a lot lately is voting Republican doesn't reduce abortions, something like that, right? Right. And so they're actually saying, hey, if voting Republican doesn't reduce abortions, I can vote Democrat, and maybe the abortion rate won't be reduced, although I'm sure some do argue that Democrats are even better at reducing abortions for some crazy reason, right? Like, they're trying to do the opposite, but they somehow reduce abortions. But they'll say, okay, it may not reduce abortions, but at least we'll do a lot of other good you know, through the Democratic platform. I think that's how a lot of them see it, okay? So that's issue number one, okay? And I'll just I'll just briefly try and touch on this, okay? That's not true at all, okay? The idea that voting Democrat is going to do a lot of good because the Democratic platform helps the poor and defends minorities, all that kind of stuff, again, all of that, in my opinion, is Marxist propaganda, Okay, and what I and what I mean by that is this idea that unless it's the government that helps the poor, we're not helping the poor. Meaning, if you don't vote to have the government tax people, take their money, and use that to help the poor in the way that the government sees fit, if you don't sign up for that whole plan, you don't really care about the poor. That's pure propaganda. That's this idea that you have to trust the government with the money, and we have to do it a certain way through the government. That violates. So many of the founding principles of our nation, right? It violates it, the whole idea of limited government is at the heart of what our nation was founded upon. That government becomes oppressive. It doesn't become oppressive because it's trying to be oppressive. It becomes oppressive because it tries to help people usually, right? But who is it going to help? How does it help? The government doesn't make anything. The only way that it has something is it has to take from people. Right, that's the whole idea of taxation. It has to take from people and then redistribute it to others. That's the whole socialist thing. So the idea that government is helping by taking from these people and giving it to those people, no, what you're doing is you're you're signing up for corruption in a major way. Right? That's what socialism always brings. It brings corruption because what you're doing is you're taking money from these people, and then you're deciding who to give it to. You don't think that becomes a politicized thing? Of course it does. That's The Democratic Party is essentially vote for us and we'll give you the rich people's money, right? That it's it, it breeds such incredible corruption. And I have a problem with that because believers, we should know better to, than to make that type of an argument, okay? Because we help we help so many people all around the world. Okay, we help them through churches, we help them as individuals, we help them through NGOs and nonprofits, Compassion International, World Vision, all of the orphanages around the world that are run by Christians, missionaries who are doing so many amazing things for the poor. My, you know, the denomination I used to work with, Assemblies of God, just the SoCal district raised like over a million dollars for refugees, for Syrian refugees, you know, in that year when I was working with them. You know, I love that kind of stuff, and that's what Christians are doing. That's the way we should be helping the poor. Why would we think that the government does a better job helping the poor? It generally does not. In fact, most of the times when it tries to help the poor, it ends up hurting them more often than not. 
And obviously that would take an entire couple episodes to, you know, back up all of that with data. But this is essentially conservative fiscal policy in a nutshell, right? So to make the argument that conservatives don't care about the poor because we don't help them through the government, it's such a dishonest argument, in my opinion. It's so dishonest, right? No, come on, just try to understand the philosophy of, of conservatives, and then we can have an honest, good-faith argument about what helps the poor more, right? So that's number one, okay? Number two, right, is the, the cowardice part or something like that, right, where pastors don't want to talk about it because they don't want to offend people and this, and or the dehumanization of babies, right? Like, hey, let's care about the mother and, you know, the baby, we're not sure if that's a person or something like that, or it's in the gray area, but we know the mother's a person. We want to care for her too, something like that. Mothers aren't being, you know, killed in massive numbers. That It's like, it's really simple. If preborn babies are people, then we have a massive genocide on our hands, the most massive genocide in the history of the world, okay? The entire abortion thing comes down to our preborn babies people. Okay? If they're people, then we have a, an incredible atrocity that we have to fix because it is so beyond every other perceived problem in society, right? Like if we're talking Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter is, you know, mobilizing to help the, all the black men that are shot, unarmed black men that are shot by police every year. Do you know how many people that was in 2019? It's about 10 people. Okay, about 10 unarmed black men were shot by police in 2019. That's what the entire Black Lives Matter movement is about. Okay, that, it doesn't compare to abortion. 700, 800,000 babies killed. If those babies are people, yeah, in one year, there's no comparison between 10 and 800,000. It's a completely different order of magnitude difference, right? So, that's the issue. Are they people or not? And I don't under I don't know anybody who from a Christian perspective is making the argument that they're not fully people. Right? Like we understand before we were born, God knew us. He knew Jeremiah. Jeremiah had his calling before he was born. Right? I think the biblical evidence is very strong that personhood starts at conception. Right? Um and those pastors who say, oh, let's only care about the mother, or let's focus on caring about the mother, they're really doing a very great disservice because this is the exact thing that happened with slavery. Okay, The exact same thing happened with slavery where a bunch of Christians decided that it was okay to dehumanize an entire group of people and say, hey, are they really human? Kind of. They're kind of human. But are they really deserving of all the same rights as we are? We fought a civil war over this to put a stop to all this, and really, you know, abolition of slavery, it was Christians, okay? It was Christians who rose up and said, we've got to put a stop to this, and we're and we're going to do whatever it takes to do it, and we're going to offend people. Leaders like Charles Finney would not give slave owners um, communion. He drew a line, right? And he said, no, if you're going to engage in this barbarism, I'm not going to fellowship with you, Right? And I think we're coming to that place with abortion. I think we're coming to that place where it's it's time to draw a line and say, look, if you're not going to stand against the murder of the unborn when it's this incredible of a trust, we have ultrasounds now, we can see, we know that they're, they're laughing and they're communicating inside of there and they're playing at times. We can see the ultrasounds of this. 
And you're not going to stand against that. That to me is such a problem today. And and then to to go, we well, yeah, it's because we need to care about the mother. It's such a dishonest thing. It's so dishonest, right? Who's talking about oppressing the mother? This is such a whataboutism. It's such a lie. We're not oppressing mothers when we're talking about, hey, if this is a baby, we have to protect the baby. Okay? That's not oppressing mothers to saying that you can't have an abortion. This It's like this idea that they just magically got pregnant. Like, they couldn't help it. It just happened to them. No, we all know what happened. Okay? They made a choice. They made a choice to have sex and they made that choice. Nobody forced them to make that choice. And then, of course, they're going to talk about the rape. Okay, we're talking, when we're talking about rape, we're talking about less than 1%, I believe, right? It, I think it's, it's way below 1% of abortions. Okay, the vast majority, 98% of abortions are, are choice. It's preference. Mothers don't want the baby. It's not because they're raped. It's not because there's some kind of medical condition going on. They simply don't want the baby. And they made the choice to have that baby when they chose to have sex. And that's why scripture is so strict about sex. It's so strict about it to protect the babies. That's the whole purpose of all of these rules that God gives us. Because the temptation is if we're casual, if we don't treat sex as a holy and and special thing, then who pays the price? The children pay the price. And it's not just the aborted babies, okay? It's all the children that grow up in broken families without committed to committed parents. And we see that fatherlessness is tied to all sorts of destructive behavior in youth. It's tied to suicide rates in youth. It's tied to, you know, incarceration rates. It's tied to dr- drug addiction rates in youth. Of course, because you you have a father usually, but a mother oftentimes too, that doesn't care enough about you to be there, right? That is not committed to you. Because they wanted the sex, but they didn't want the baby, is what it comes down to a lot of times. And I'm sorry to be a little bit harsh, but this is the place for harshness, okay? This is the place, we're talking about protecting innocent children here. And we can't pretend like they're just getting hurt, like it's just stray bullets out there that's killing them or something like that. No, people are making a decision. Adults are making the decisions that are hurting these children. And I'm tired of pastors saying we need to think about you know, the mother, we need, no, we need to think about the baby, they're the ones who are being killed right now, okay, mothers are not being mass murdered in America, okay, and that's why I think we got to fight this thing, and I, I encourage every pastor, you cannot, in my opinion, be silent on this matter anymore, you've got to get in this fight, because we are, we're in like 1850 right now, okay, 1850, Abolition, the movement is on, okay? That's where we're at right now in America. The abolition movement is on. Pick a side. Get with the program. And I I don't, again, I don't mean to be super harsh, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of lives at stake here. Okay, this is a, this is a moral crisis in the nation. And I'm concerned about God's judgment. God is concerned about the shedding of innocent blood. We see that consistently in Scripture. That's exactly what we have going on here. We have the greatest shedding of innocent blood in the history of the world. Does the one who formed the eye not see? The one who formed the ear not hear? Does the one who rules over the nations not judge? Of course he will judge in this matter. 
Why does God allow war? War is the most common judgment on nations. Okay? So when we're setting ourselves up for such an incredibly devastating war, and from heaven's perspective, it's warranted because we had the opportunity to stop this, but we didn't consider it important enough to fight for it. I think this is a message that needs to be. I just don't hear a lot of Christians talking about this now. You know, it's uh, everyone's quiet about it. It's almost as if, you know, yeah, yeah, abortion is evil. Yeah. But what about the life, you know, after, you know, the womb? You know, they're implying that we don't care about the baby. But it seems to me, it's, it, gosh, that I don't think they're caring about the baby inside the womb. You know, I mean, sure. and I, I don't want to slander anyone, but that's the impression I'm getting. You know, sure. I mean, um, Christian artist was saying that the reason why um, abortions are thriving right now, it's because of the conditions of, you know, uh, in low income communities where they don't have health care or they're very poor. That's the reason why um, abortion is thriving. And I'm like. It's not the fact that this abortion on demand, it's not the fact that society is saying that abortion is a right and a good. You know, it's not the fact that, you know, that cultural Marxism where it's like your convenience is better than having that, that child. You know what I mean? Like, um, um, I just, man, I feel like a lot of Christians are blinded, you know? Yeah, to be fair, that, you know, in our circles... I don't hear a lot of, of leaders talking about abortion that much, right? But in in America, I think there are a lot of Christian leaders who are speaking out, a lot of pastors out there who are speaking out a lot. And, um, you know, good good for them. Good for them. I think that that is, is, is really important. And, um, yeah, let me just comment on, on one quick thing you said there. Like, um, yeah, this idea that the people are having abortions because they don't have access to health care. Do you understand that argument? Like, it, it it seems to me like they're usually talking about contraceptives, right? Like, they need easier access to contraceptives. Like, honestly, this idea that we're treating people like they're, like they're kids or they're morons, okay? Almost every adult in America knows how to get a contraceptive, all right? Like, we have Amazon. We've got them at Walgreens. They're, they're not, and it's not like they're expensive. Like, this idea, like, oh, they can't afford them. Come on, give me a break, that has nothing to do with this. It's almost nothing to do with this, okay? The poorest American is rich enough to afford condoms or whatever. That's not the issue, right? That's not the issue. What we've done is we have... We've refused to talk about the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is the choice that people are making to have sex outside of marriage. And look, uh, to be fair, it can be in marriage too, okay? The choice to have sex and not want a baby and to be willing to go so far as to kill it if you get impregnated, that's what's going on today, right? Meaning we're not treating sex like it's a holy thing in, in our culture anymore. It's like a, it's a, it's a thing you can do for fun. It's so devastating, so damaging in our culture. And this is my problem. I don't see that many pastors talking about this 
But this is at the heart of so much of the the destruction in our nation right now. It's our sex culture, right? There's a reason why God is so strict about sex. And there's a reason why we are called to teach his commands, teach the nation to obey his commands. That's the Great Commission, right? That's why William Wilberforce, let's... He wants purity to be popular again, to be fashionable again, right? That whole idea, we need to get back on that train. There are great arguments for why you should not have sex as much as you can in America. There's statistics that show, number one, if you're sexually active, the chances are pretty good. If you're the average female and you're sexually active over a 10-year period, the chances are better than not that you're going to get pregnant even if you're using contraception. Okay, even if you're using contraception, because if every time I forget what the the statistics are, if it's like it's like a one percent chance you're going to get pregnant if you're using contraception or something like that, but you you roll those dice enough times, and the chances get pretty good that in time you're going to get pregnant even if you're using contraception. Okay, but it's not just that. If you look at the average time that um, a marriage lasts, right, it correlates with how many sexual partners you've had prior to marriage. You see that people who do not have sex outside of marriage, they tend to have the longest lasting marriages. And people who have many sexual partners tend to have the shortest lasting marriages. There's all this data out there that we don't talk about, we won't touch, because we've now treated this thing like sex, like, oh, of course, and if you don't think it's okay, you're a prude or something like that. No, it's so destructive to you, but mostly to your children. This idea that it's okay to marry and to divorce and all like we don't honor marriage like we once did in our in our nation. Who's paying the price? The children are paying the price. Growing up without committed parents. And the scriptures speak about these things, and pastors, we've got to speak about these things. Right? We've got to show the nation it's better. Our marriages last longer. They're healthier, right? When we protect the sanctity of marriage and when we honor marriage. When you look at when we're looking at systemic racism and stuff like that, people want to blame all sorts of outside factors. No, the primary issue that's going on, okay, in minority communities that are struggling in America is fatherlessness, okay? And that comes right back to sex, okay? It's not sex is not 100% of the answer, but it's a huge portion of the answer. And we're just ignoring it. We're pretending like this part doesn't matter. But it really matters, right? It really matters. And that's why I say you can't have a conversation about systemic racism without having a conversation about sin. Those two things are linked together. But that's the thing. If you try and bring up sin in a conversation about systemic racism, you immediately offend and outrage everyone. And I don't have a problem with non-Christians being outraged. They're going to be outraged about whatever. I have a problem when Christians get outraged. Like, we can't talk about sin what kind of Christian are you, right? Wait, why would they get outraged about that? Because though? it's victim blaming, right? Now you're blaming these oppressed peoples because they have a mentality like, no, the reason why they're struggling socioeconomically is because they're oppressed by white supremacy. And now you're going to talk about their sin and you're trying to blame them, right? You're part of this you know, complex, this racist complex that's holding them down. And I'm like, it's... To me, that's why it's it's a different worldview at this point. Okay, it's a different worldview. No, what you see in cultural groups is that family and education tend to be tied to the success of ethnic groups in almost every society throughout history. 
Okay, Asians in America have the lowest rates of sex of pregnancy outside of marriage, right? And they have the highest median incomes. That's not that's not a coincidence. Okay, they're tied together. If you're Black Americans have the highest rates of pregnancy outside of marriage, over seventy percent of Black babies are conceived to single mothers today. All right, and they have the lowest income. That's because it's very difficult to raise a baby as a single mother without committed a committed father, right? These things are all linked together. And we want to pretend like it's all of these other forces. No, it's pretty clearly about family and oftentimes about sex. So we've got to include this in the conversation. And again, I understand when non-Christians refuse to have those conversations. That's fine for now. We need to have those conversations in the church. We need to have honest conversations about this. And I have problems when pastors are already getting huffy and puffy and upset at even having the conversation, actually looking at the data. To, in my mind, that is, such, um, that is such a betrayal of your calling. Your calling is to point to sin and say, these are the effects of sin, therefore repent. That, that's such a huge part of what the church is supposed to be doing. And so that, to me, is extremely problematic when we can't even have conversations, right? We had this panel about race, you know, in, you know that, that panel that we did with TMP, and people are already getting offended, and I'm like, these are the types of things we should be able, as pastors, to be able to have conversations without getting offended. If you can't have a conversation and honestly look at the data without getting offended, that, to me, is, is such an immaturity. And that's and the problem is not that there's a handful. It's it's widespread. There's so many leaders like that where if you try and talk about this, they start getting offended almost immediately. That is extremely problematic. I saw that race panel. Yeah, that I think you probably only said two sentences in that whole thing. And wow, just the the vitriol that you got from that. You know, um, yeah. It's hard to have conversations now. It's hard to have civil dialogue. And, and, and what's heartbreaking is it's hard to have it in the body. You know, like, like you were saying, everybody gets offended. It's like the fruit of the spirit is absent now. You know, uh, we can't reason with each other. So um, how do we go about this? You know, how do we how do we gently and humbly bring back the brother who has fallen into, you know, sin and how do we even have this conversation if they don't even want to listen to us? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, look, yeah, yeah. I think unfortunately, it 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 it's splitting. Evangelicalism is splitting. Like, there's, you know, I would love to say that we can work this out, but from my perspective, what it looks like is it looks like two different worldviews. And the more you get into that worldview, the more, yeah, you don't see sin as being the issue. You see oppression as being the issue. That's the that's the primary difference between in my opinion, the biblical worldview and the Marxist worldview. In the Marxist worldview, you know, bad stuff happens to you because other people oppress you, something like that, right? In the biblical worldview, bad stuff happens to you because of your own sin primarily. That's what the Bible is primarily concerned about. It's getting you to repent of your sin, not you, you know, fomenting revolution against the oppressors who are over there. Like Jesus was part of an oppressed people group. You don't see him trying to foment rebellion against the Romans, Right? He's warning Jews, the oppressed people, you're going to die in your sins if you don't repent. 
right? His concern is that they need to repent of their sins, put their faith in him, and then he will deliver them from their true oppressors, which are the spiritual powers, the rulers of this world, right? And, and that's from a spiritual perspective. So from the biblical perspective, humanity is oppressed by the devil and by the spiritual powers, and that's because we were given over to them because of our sins. So that's why we have to repent and put our faith in Christ, and then we're translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's the biblical worldview, and that's a different worldview from the Marxist worldview, which is primarily concerned about class warfare between humans on the earth. Now, you mentioned earlier, Dennis, that, you know, we Christians, like, need to start fighting, right? We need to fight against the leftist ideologies and, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, Chris Valton is a, a wonderful human being, but, you know, this, this nice kind of re- response is not what's needed right now. How is that different, though, from kind of our more liberal uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who are all about having, you know, a revolution as well against oppression. Yeah. Well, what's the difference question. between the two? It's a yeah. good question. Um, the 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 primary one is that our battle is not primarily physical, right? Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right, but against you, the powers, right, the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So that's the idea. That's who we're fighting against, okay? Now, powers use people to further their agenda. They use ideology to control and manipulate people groups, right? Jordan Peterson has uh, articulates this great. I think he gets it from Jung, this idea that um, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. I think that's a profound way of saying it, but it's, it's very biblical, right? That's the idea that these ideologies capture people and the ideologies use them as pawns in their purposes, right? And I would say that's true. Like, I'm captured by Christianity, right? I serve Christianity because I serve this ideology. And um, so our battle is not probably against the people. The people are not the evil ones, per se. The people are pawns are being used by evil forces. And that, to me, is the biggest difference between the way that we wage warfare and, you know, Marxist wage warfare. In in the Marxist mentality, it's the people are the oppressors, and it really stirs up resentment and jealousy and anger and and hatred against people, right? Biblical Christianity is different. We don't hate people. We understand they're deceived. We understand they're being used, right? Um, and we we want to free them, right? We want to free them. We love them, but we're gonna we're gonna fight against their ideas. Their ideas are the things that are truly damaging and hurtful and causing bondage to people, right? So would you say then, civil war, was that a justified war? Yeah, it's a great question. um, Right? Because, you know, they have these ideologies and they are oppressing people. Mm -hmm. So when when do we cross the line then of, you know, uh, uh, basically physical arms now and and, and going to war? You know, C.S. Lewis said that, you know, Christians are not pacifists, right? There is a time to stand up. So, you know, how do we discern when, when the right time to actually fight? I mean, fight in a way where we're now defending, right? Yes. And uh, protecting life. Yes, absolutely, right? So yeah. our primary battle as Christians is spiritual in nature. Right. Is there, are there times and circumstances where we engage physically in warfare? Yeah, yeah I think so. And that has to do with, with government, right? Usually you need government sanction, right? Romans 13, mm-hmm. the government has been given the power of the sword, right? 
So you need government sanction. Now, revolutions are a really interesting thing because what you have is you have vying governments. You have multiple governments who are claiming legitimate authority, right? Uh-huh. And so that does get messier. We probably need a longer you know, episode. I think we're this episode is probably getting a little bit long for us to go super in-depth. Maybe we could pick that yeah. one up next time because that's a really yeah. interesting question, not just for the Civil War, but for the Revolutionary War too, right? Like right. at what point is it right to get involved in these wars as believers? And I think that might be a really important question. We should probably just do it a whole episode devoted to is there a coming civil war and, yeah. you know, all the issues involved in that because I think there are a lot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Open a whole can of worms there. Yeah. But I'm excited <laughs> for that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Dennis, thank you for sharing your thoughts, man. This was great. Uh, I learned a lot. Um, you answered a lot of my questions, uh, especially when it comes to prophecy and things like that. And uh, man, I am excited to see what God is going to do this year. For sure, bro. You know, Me I, too, man. I ca- cannot wait for November to end <laughs> in December. Like, man, let's just see. Yeah. But uh, thank you, Dennis. For sure, brother. Thanks again, Paul. Yeah. Love you, man. Yeah. Love you too, bro. All right.